0: Okay, you may be seated. And I think we're going to let the children be dismissed for junior church this time also. Margie and Charlie Shoemaker, it is great to see you guys. Okay, really good to have you with us. Okay, we can... Those children went, didn't they? They're already gone. Okay. I uh, want us to turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Corinthians. <coughs> book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, we're looking into uh, chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and let's begin reading in verse 6 down through verse 10. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom amongst the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom. A wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no mind has ever conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. then I love this next statement. Isn't it beautiful? But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. One of the things that you'll notice, just give me one second here. One of the things that you will notice in uh, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 is a de-emphasis on wisdom and an exaltation of the word foolishness. Okay, so as you go through chapter 1, the, the wisdom of God is greater than man. The wisdom of man is perceived ultimately as foolishness because it is being compared to the greater wisdom of God. And so you find this sort of tension and a question may arise in your mind as you read these passages of Scripture. You may begin to wonder, is Paul saying that biblical Christianity is at some level anti-intellectual? okay you hear statements like this ted turner i don't know it might be 10 or 15 years ago I'll never forget hearing this statement he said this he said jesus christ for christians is a crutch okay jesus christ for christians is a crutch meaning christians are weak people who need jesus they can't quite get by without jesus a politician and i don't single him out i'm not going to say his name but a politician recently expressed, I believe, what is fairly much a common feeling in our culture, and that is that some people cling to God. Okay, and they talked about something else they cling to too, but they cling to God. They need God in a way that implied sophisticated intellectual people don't need God. Okay, Paul is aware of that. When he comes to Corinth to preach the gospel in verse 2 of chapter 2, he said, I resolved to know nothing while it was among you except Christ and Him crucified. Which earlier in chapter 1 he said is foolishness to the Gentiles and weakness to the Jews. Meaning, it, it, it's it's for people who are kind of less sophisticated. So this morning, you need to understand this. If you profess faith in Jesus Christ, by and large, the world that you live in sees you as a little less sophisticated or a little more needy than the average person. How does that make you feel? Okay. It causes some Christians to be silent about their faith in Christ. It shouldn't. Because the gospel of Christ that saves us for the glory of God is the wisdom of God. So Paul has said, verses 1 through 5, I didn't come to you with wisdom, with sophisticated speech and flowing eloquence. It's not the way he came. He said, I came to you, verse 2, preaching and proclaiming Christ and him crucified and nothing else. The plan of God, I want to say to you this morning is not merely for the intellectual, nor for the privileged, not with people, not for people with a high IQ. The wisdom of God, the plan of God, is for average people, which are what make up this congregation and church family. Just average people who have been exposed to the grace and glory of God through the work of the Spirit of God. And this morning I want to look at just a few characteristics of the wisdom of God that has been revealed to every Believer, what is the wisdom of God like? This wisdom that has been revealed to every believer. Now, I'm just going to make four basic assertions. The first one is this God's wisdom is superior to man's wisdom. And, and, and the wisdom I want to define here God's wisdom through Jesus is superior to man's wisdom, his way. Or if I use the word religion, I want to see if this catches. Okay, God's way is superior to man's way in every way, particularly in the realm of how does a sinner achieve or have, acquire a personal relationship with a holy God. Well, see, that's the tension that rises. Man's answer to that question, how does a sinner have a right relationship with a holy God, is what? The word starts with an R. What, What does man make up in order for us to have a relationship with God? Religion, right? What is the emphasis in the context of religion? You know, for people that participate in it, what's the emphasis in religion? Okay, it's always works. It is your performance. And if you perform well enough, if you're shrewd enough, smart enough to work it out and figure it out, you can achieve a relationship with God. Here's God's response to that. God says, that is foolishness. The wisdom of God is superior to man's way, to man's religion. Verses 5 and 6, I want you to notice how he says this. He says, in verse 5, he says, I want your faith to rest not on men's wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, verse 6, speak a message of wisdom amongst the mature but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Fascinating, isn't it? What is Paul saying? The message that I am preaching is superior to any scheme or religious system that man can devise. Okay, now basically what does religion say? What religion says is this. You achieve a status before God in which you are acceptable, by your works. The focus is on what you do. In biblical Christianity, in God's wisdom way, the emphasis is on what God, through Jesus Christ, has what? Has done for us. So if you're ever trying to figure this out, okay, distinguishing between religion and a personal relationship with God. Religion says you do, and you finally achieve a, you reach a status, but you're never sure if you're there. Biblical Christianity says, God sent a son. His son is the wisdom of God. In flesh, he took the price for your sin on Calvary's cross. Okay? So Paul's first kind of front or thrust is, we speak a better wisdom, better than man's. It is not man-made. It is revealed from and by God. God's wisdom reaches out to us in His glorious Son who becomes one of us to pay the price for our sin. I want you to look at verse 30 real quick of chapter 1. He says, It is because of Him that you are, that is because of God, because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom, and what's the next phrase say? From God. Okay, so this superior way is revealed by God to humanity. Jesus becomes wisdom from God, and then he says that wisdom is this, our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Okay, now think. If I buy into religion, what am I trying to do? I am trying to absolve myself of the inherent guilt that I feel that is spoken into my life through my conscience. I know that I don't measure up. Religion says get rid of that guilt, by doing better things. Biblical Christianity says you get rid of that guilt by having forgiveness through God's wisdom. You get rid of that guilt through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Okay? So God's way is superior because it is, in a sense, provided by Him as a gift of grace. Second thought I want to impress upon you this morning from verse 7 is this God's wisdom is His intent to rescue every believer from their sin by the cross. Okay, I'm being very specific here. God's wisdom is his intent to rescue believers, that is, those who put faith and trust in Christ from their sin by the cross. Now, what is that saying? No merit, no effort, no performance. We come into a right relationship with the Father through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So notice how he says this in verse 7. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom or his wisdom, which is a mystery, a wisdom that had been hidden but has been destined for our glory before time began. God's wisdom concerning Christ was hidden in the past and has been made known. When we read the word mystery, what do we tend to think of? We think of like mysterious little strange, weird, okay? That's mysterious. Not the idea of the word that's used in the Bible. The word that's used in the Bible indicates the idea of something that was previously hidden and now has been what? Revealed or made known. Okay, it's, a better word would be, it is the secret of God. It was something that He planned in the past and revealed at the time of the coming of Jesus Christ, His Son. His Son's coming was His plan. And God manifested His plan amongst humanity. And what is God seeking to do in sending His Son in His plan? He is seeking to answer a question. And the question is this. How does a sinful man, woman, or young person achieve a status of righteousness with a holy God? That's the question. And how can God give them that status of acceptance while not violating His own holiness, His justice? And the answer to that question, biblically, is through the crosswork of His Son, Jesus Christ. So, it was hidden in the past, and it is revealed in the present. Now, I want to give you four descriptions of this wisdom of God that intends to rescue believers from their sin. First of all, it is this. It has been planned by God. Okay? One of the things that becomes very clear in verse 7. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom which was hidden and that God, and notice this word, destined, that is to predestinate, choose before time for our glory. Okay, now that is a kind of a statement that causes you to stop. It is His settled plan. It is not subject to modification and change. It is also His eternal plan. That is, it has been marked out by God before you were born and, I'll stretch you a little bit further, before the world was created. That blows my mind. You say, Tim, what does that mean? Here's what it means. God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, in their infinite wisdom, chose to create this world. Knowing that we, humanity, would rebel against His rightful rule. And knowing that we would rebel against His rightful rule, He designed, before the world began, a plan by which He would rescue rebels at the expense of His own Son. That should blow your mind. Folks, that, what does that look like? That sounds like foolishness, doesn't it? It's exactly what Paul's saying through chapter 1. The foolishness of God is wiser than man. You could not have discerned this plan of God apart from God revealing it, making it known. So what what is Paul saying? This plan, which was a mystery hidden in the past, a secret, has been revealed in the coming of Jesus Christ. When was it done? Before the world began. Now, I want, I want to bounce you to a a couple of verses. Let me just read these for you. Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to us by miracles, wonders, and signs. Meaning, he was recommended to us by God by his supernatural, undeniable activity, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know this man was handed over to you by god's set purpose and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him on the cross but god raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him now, what is paul saying or peter saying peter is saying you did the plan of god when you put him on the cross it was the predetermined plan of god by which he would pay the incredible price for your sin. I then turn your attention to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 20. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. No, you were redeemed with the, listen to this, precious blood of Christ, a lamb spotless without defect or blemish. What is it speaking about? The sinless perfection of the Lamb of God. Now, here's the question that comes up. When did God send His Son? When was the plan made? Here's what it says. He was chosen before the creation of the world. Okay, meaning the plan was devised before the world was created, knowing that we would rebel, but it was revealed in these last times. So what is it? A secret, a mystery about how rebels would be redeemed for the glory of God that plan was laid out before time revealed in the context of time for the sake of everyone who would believe uh, <clears throat> also can turn your attention to one other passage real quick second timothy chapter 1 and verse 9 god saved us and called us to a holy life listen to this Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us. Now listen, this grace of God, redeeming grace, saving grace, cleansing grace, was given to us in Christ before the beginning of time. That's the third time I can show you that this plan of God was foreordained by God a plan by which He would not discard us in our sin, by, by which He would offer redemption and forgiveness. Paul says, It has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Isn't that beautiful? This wisdom of God, isn't, it's not something that God you know, came up with after He created the world, saw Adam and Eve messed up and stood in heaven wringing his hands trying to figure out what would he do about this rebellion? It's not the way it worked. It was the plan of God before the world began. Now I know in a lot of your minds here's what you're thinking of. I find it hard to believe that God did it that way. Right? Why? Because it sounds like foolishness. But it is the wisdom and love and power of God that is now made clear through the glorious, redeeming work of Jesus. It was planned by the Father, whose just response to our sin is His wrath. Please understand this, folks. He created us. We in our sinful flesh rebel against Him. What we deserve, what we have earned, Romans 6.23, is the wages of our sin. The Bible says that the wages of our sin is death. It is the wrath of God separating us from God forever. That is what I deserve. But in His wisdom, God sent His glorious, awesome, incredible Son to pay the price for our sin. That was planned by God. Our salvation is also this. It is purchased by the Son. That's why you go back to chapter, or verse 2 of chapter 2 in 1 Corinthians. Paul said, I have resolved to know nothing among you while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Why? Because that is the message that is universal in its scope and application. Every individual needs the saving work of Jesus Christ in their life. He came in flesh. He died for us. He died for our sins. And being sinless, He bore the wrath of God and died the death that we deserve. Galatians 2.13 puts it in this way. In the wisdom of God, Jesus Christ became a curse for us. Think about that. Jesus Christ became a curse for us. Why? Because that curse that falls on the one, Galatians 2, that hangs on a tree is the just and necessary response of a holy God to human rebellion. Folks, what I deserve is to be cursed by God. That's what I deserve. And I will never appreciate the cross in the way that I should until I realize that on the cross, Jesus Christ became a curse for me. Why? Because the justice of God demanded satisfaction. Father sent His Son to satisfy the just demands of His wrath so that sinners could be forgiven and restored and adopted, redeemed, sanctified. By the work of God. That should blow our minds. That we rebels have this privileged relationship with God. This wisdom of God is sadly missed by many. We can click off some names, can't we? We can think of Pilate. Who was probably twisted concerning the condemnation of Christ. I find no fault in him. And yet what does he do? Ruler of the world. He turns over the Son of God to crucifixion. Caiaphas, the high priest, Saul, heard about the miracles of Christ. Jesus was attested, witnessed to them by signs and wonders. And yet, what did they do? They ignored him and called for his crucifixion. The crowds had seen and heard about the workings of Christ. What did they do? They called for his crucifixion. Say, Tim, where does this go? Look look with me, if you will, at verse 8. Verse 8 says, none of the rulers of this age understood it. Understood what? The wisdom of God. Okay? This plan to redeem lost sinners through His glorious, perfect Son, Jesus Christ. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Fascinating statement, isn't it? If they knew, genuinely knew in their hearts who He was, they would not have called for His crucifixion. Why did they call for his crucifixion? Because the Bible tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Romans three ten through 12 says, None seeks after God. What am I by nature? I'm a rebel. I'm an individual who wants his own way in life. Apart from the grace and intervention of God, I want life on my terms. I want life my way. So in verse 8, Paul can say that the rulers, the prominent of this world, missed the wisdom of God. They saw His miracles and yet killed the Lord of glory. That is fascinating. They had to pay people to lie about His guilt in order to get the verdict that they wanted. That's how hard the human heart is, folks. I wonder this morning, if you're here, you've heard the message of Christ... You know about the glory of Christ. You know about His cross work. But you have been resisting. You've been sensing His knocking at the door of your heart. Him drawing and calling you. But you are resisting Him. Can I beg with you this morning? Beg of you this morning? Yield to the call of God. Yield to the draw of God in your heart. And trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. This gospel is planned by the Father, purchased by the Son, sadly missed by many. And this next thought to me is amazing. End of verse 7. What does it say? He says, No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory. Now think about this. The wisdom of God to redeem us through the cross work of Jesus, was destined for our glory. I don't know about you, but I'm uncomfortable with that. When I, you start to unpack these words, and you think you're going to find something that kind of gets us out from under what seems to be implied, that there is, in the gospel, given by God, something that is to, in some way, give us glory. That, to me, is humbling. That's kind of mind-blowing, a, to give us glory. And I, I, If you say to me, Tim, what do you think that's about? Okay, ultimately I think it's about this. Taking humankind, created perfect, fallen into sin, and restoring them back to a proper relationship with God. Bringing man to God's original intent. That is the purpose and work of the Father. Not to let us in our sin, but to... Come up with a way, a plan by which He would redeem us from our sin and in some way give us glory. But I must say this. If you're familiar with the terms like penultimate and ultimate, okay, this, this lesser glory, our being redeemed, and then the ultimate glory, God save me. So that any status, any, any restoration that is present in my life, any redemption in my life is owing to what? The grace of God. And so you read throughout Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, God did this for His glory. Okay, because ultimately, what is it about? It is about this incredible concept that God has planned for every believer. Everlasting joy. We as believers are beneficiaries of this wisdom of God. It is designed with us in mind. The ultimate purpose of it is the glory of God. You say, Tim, how has that worked out? Think about it. Romans chapter 5 and I believe Romans 4, or Revelation 5 and Revelation 4. Okay, what do you find there? You find the redeemed singing praises, honoring and glorifying the Lamb of God. And what what do they say? They're praising the Lamb who was slain and who purchased from every tongue, tribe, and nation, people for His own possession. Folks, what is the glory of a believer? The glory of a believer is that they have been ransomed by the grace of God. Have the hope of heaven. And that joy is an inexpressible type of joy. It is an everlasting joy. It is an ultimate joy. His plan to rescue us and to redeem us apart from our own merit is staggering for everyone who has been forgiven. And it goes a step further, because what it means is this. Not only do I experience forgiveness now, and a relationship with God now, but there is the hope of heaven, which Paul talks about later, doesn't he? Here's what Paul says. Because you think about this. Okay, God is giving us glory, and you have to think to yourself, that seems odd. What does Paul say? Now we see through a glass, how? Dimly. Okay? Why? Because my understanding of glory, my understanding of what is awesome, is affected by the fact that I am some in some way bound to the material realm. I don't get the glory of heaven. Okay, in some ways, I, I look forward to being in heaven, the face-to-face with Christ part. I look forward to that. But my mind doesn't understand all the things that God has for me when I get there. All of the glory of what it would be like to be in his presence without a watch, without the need for this, okay? No clock in his presence forever. Never thinking, okay, a couple hundred years just passed. Folks, do you understand in heaven that will never happen? Because we will be in the eternal presence of God. People say, what are we going to do for all that time? There will be no time. No time. I look forward to that. It will be a, just a glorious display of God's incredible grace. And here's the cool thing about this wisdom of God and this gospel of God. You don't have to have a PhD to understand it. It's not the intellectual property of people with a high IQ. It is the experience of everyone who has been brooded upon and moved upon by the Spirit of God and has been called to simple, saving faith and trust in Christ. The brilliant PhD is no better equipped to understand the gospel than you or I. Isn't that an amazing thought? person with a PhD is no better equipped to grasp the glories of the gospel than every believer who has the indwelling spirit of God this wisdom of God however can only be revealed clearly by his spirit look at verse 10 with me if you will I have to read verse 9 to set this up however as it is written No eye has seen, and no ear has heard, and no mind has ever conceived what God has prepared for a very distinct group of people, those who love Him. But God has revealed it to us by the Spirit. It leads me to my third thought. God's wisdom can only be revealed clearly by the Spirit. What is verse 9 saying? Verse 9 is saying, no eye and no ear has ever seen or heard the wisdom and plan of God. What is that saying? It cannot be discovered by human mechanisms. No eye has ever seen, no ear has ever discovered. And notice the next phrase he says, and no mind has ever conceived. It is not gained by rationale, by logic, and by intuition. It has never been conceived. It is instead revealed by God. Why? Why? Because there is none righteous, not even one, none seeks after God, all turn their own way. That's humanity apart from the work of the Spirit of God. So if you have been moved upon by God in your heart and have come to saving faith in Christ, how did it happen? Can you say, well, I just happen to be wiser than the person that lives at 9 Lauren Drive than the person that lives at 11 Lauren Drive? Can I take credit? What is Paul saying? No mind has ever conceived this. No mind has ever understood it. The indication, I think, at some level seems to be pretty clear. It cannot be grasped by unaided and rebellious sinful hearts. You can't get the gospel by yourself. It takes the work of the Spirit of God. And what does Paul say? But God has revealed it to us. And I love, he doesn't say God revealed it to me. What does he say? God revealed it to us. He's always editorializing in this text. Why? He doesn't want the focus to be on him. This is about the glory of Christ. So it's not grasped by an unaided, sinful, rebellious human heart. It is grasped by the heart upon which God in his grace so powerfully moves. My mind was drawn as I studied this to the interaction between Jesus and Peter just prior to the crucifixion and just prior to the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember the passage. Jesus looks at the disciples and says, okay, who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're this, and some say you're the prophet, and some say this or that. Yeah, but who do you say that I am? And what does Peter say? Peter responds to him and says, you're the Christ. You are the son of the living God. What is Peter saying? We have seen his glory. And Jesus stops him cold in his tracks. He says, Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Folks, let that sink in. If you understand the glory of Christ, if you understand the magnitude that He, God in flesh, went to the cross to pay the price for your sin, flesh and blood did not understand that, see that. it was shown to you by the Spirit. Verse 10, I think, makes it so clear. So, if you have been redeemed by the grace of God, if you have seen the glory of Christ, what should the response of my heart be? Overflowing with what? Deep and profoundest gratitude. Here's an amazing thing. If you look at verse 9, where it says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has ever conceived. What is that usually thought to be explaining? What do most people assume that verse 9 is describing? Heaven, right? I hear, you hear this where? Funerals all the time. No eye has seen and no ear has heard the things that God has prepared for those who love him. And what are we always thinking about? We're always thinking about the stuff and how beautiful heaven's going to be. Right? We're always thinking that that's, that's what it's all about. I wonder, I, I think heaven's going to be a big surprise. What is it that no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no mind has ever conceived? It is the glory of the cross. That is clearly what is intended in context. Now, here, here's what I fear. What I fear is if I live my life in a fallen world, wanting more, heaven will be... All right, this isn't even a word. Heaven will be trinketized. Okay? So you understand what I mean by it. It, it will become... I'm going to want the, the nice stuff of heaven. And I'm going to live for the, that the hope in the future is that I'm going to be in this perfect place. And it is all of that. But it does not compare to what it will be like to be face to face with Christ. And all I'm saying is this. Don't ever let all the glorious descriptions of heaven that you read or hear about, and they are intended for our pleasure But they are not to be what attracts us and draws us out in this life. What is to motivate us in this life to live full on for the glory of God is the cross of Christ that no eye has seen, and that no ear has heard, and that no mind ever came up with. That is the wisdom of God. That He, before time, would send His Son to redeem rebellious sinners. Because you know what we would have done if we were God? We would have trashed it and said, I'm going to start over. That's what we would have done. Not God. You know know what? Every person in this room has something in common. We are rebels. Loved by the grace of God. And that for every Christian is some of the deepest theological territory that you can ever understand. Brings me to the last thought. It's this. God's wisdom, once revealed, once understood, is amazing and stunning to the redeemed. I have a lot of fun when I go to a carnival or like the Warren County Fair because I love to watch how much money people will spend to get those trinkets. You know what I'm talking about, right? The big you know, stuff lying under the arm, whatever, whatever you know, flipper, whatever it is, okay? Oh, I got money. In how much time is that thing like sitting out in the trash can? okay we can let the hope of heaven the lesser aspect of it eclipse the greater aspect of it and that becomes i think paul's fear the glory of heaven is going to be seeing christ face to face that will be the glory of heaven don't ever let the hope of heaven the stuff pull you away from the personal relationship with jesus christ so desires, gloriously provided to have with you. Heaven is primarily not about beautiful things. Heaven is about the unhindered presence of Jesus Christ. And that is why the hymn writer says, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the stars, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first began. Folks, we will be regularly overwhelmed and astonished at the glory of the cross of Christ by which we are made His children. If you see today, if you hear today, if you know today the gospel of Christ, I want to encourage you to do something. Cry out to God in deep and profound gratitude. Because flesh and blood did not achieve this. The Spirit of God made it clear. The Spirit of God convicted and showed you that there is a Savior, there is hope. And along with that hope, what comes? All the joy of heaven comes with that. But the focus, the center point, is Jesus Christ. The glory of the Father, revealed and manifested by the Spirit. Do you see? So that our lives should be consumed with knowing Christ and his glory. That's why later, 1 John chapter 1, and in the early verses, John says, we beheld his glory. We touched him. We handled him. The glory of God was in our midst. And as John moves towards the point of his death, that's what he wants to talk about. The glory of God that was revealed, that was manifested in Christ, and he can't wait to be there with him. That is the greatest joy that every Christian has. Don't follow the trinkets. Don't follow the garnishment. Stick with the main course. Remember that we make no contribution to our eternal status. It is the wisdom of God that He sent His Son in flesh, the purpose of paying the price for our sin, so that we could be free. Don't ever get over it and ask you this question as we close. Are you amazed by the wisdom of God? Don't get used to it. If you're amazed by it, you know what you're going to do? You're going to take it and you're going to go share it. You're going to pray that God gives you an opportunity this week to share with someone the glory of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, His Son, so that you can share this most precious treasure with those around you. Let's bow our heads together this morning. Father.